Welcome to the Reversing Diabetes Podcast with Delane ND, the podcast for people looking to correct chronic illnesses such as diabetes through lifestyle change. I'm Dr. Delane Vaughn. As a physician, I see many patients who are ill because of lifestyle decisions such as food choices. Typically, diseases such as diabetes are managed with pills or injections. This approach creates a vicious, expensive, and unhealthy cycle of medication and then more medication to address the negative side effects. As a physician and a life coach, I work with clients to resolve their diseases, get off their medications, and live a naturally healthy life. If you don't like the healthcare system in America, I recommend you use less of it by being naturally healthy. So if you feel there has to be a better, more natural way to live a healthy life, you are in the right place. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. You are listening to the Reversing Diabetes with Delane MD podcast. This is episode number something or another because I don't know where I'm going to put this in the series. But today I'm recording probably the most important podcast I will record or have recorded up to this date. Not only is it important to know about how to change your health, how to reverse your type 2 diabetes, how to engage the agency that you have over your health, but this podcast today is going to talk about why it's so important This has been prompted by a conversation I had with a woman I was coaching earlier this week, and she said the thing that I hear a lot from women. I don't understand why I have to make a change, why I have to eat differently. Everybody else can do it, but I can't. So when you break this down and you think about in the thought model, you have a circumstance of the food that you're eating, the foods that you are eating, and then you have a thought that they get to eat whatever they want, but I don't. The feeling that comes from that is bad. I don't I, I I I have it written down as shitty. It's a shitty feeling. Pick your flavor of that. Sometimes that crummy feeling is scared because you feel helpless. Sometimes that feeling that you have from they get to do it but I don't feels like you're inferior or like somebody's violating you or like you're victimized somehow in a way. Sometimes it's anger, it's bitterness, it's, you know, indignation, again, this violated feeling. Sometimes it's frustrated and infuriated and annoyed. Sometimes it's humiliated. You're embarrassed, like you're embarrassed that they can do that, but I can't. What's wrong with me? Sometimes it's straight sadness, like you feel disappointed, you feel inferior, you feel isolated, you feel fragile. You feel vulnerable. You feel guilty. I don't care how you twist it. Those That thought, they can do it, but I can't, feels crummy. It is not fun. It's nothing that guides any meaningful action in your life. So from this circumstance of the foods that you eat and your thought that they get to eat what they want, but I can't, and this crummy feeling especially if it's like this violated, victimized, almost injustice feeling. You're like, hell no, I'm going to eat what I want too. And that's the action that it drives. It drives you to go out and eat foods that continue to make you sick, producing more evidence that everybody else can eat what they want, but you can't. Okay. So that's the thought model. And that's the what it creates for you. That's how it creates the experience that you are having in your life. This belief that they can do it, but you can't. 
those are the steps, the act, the feeling and the actions creating the results that support this belief that you have. They can eat it, but I can't. That's the breakdown of it. Remember, the thought model that I use is just a framework for me to hang the story that you're telling me on in a meaningful way so that we can break it down and see where your agency is to change that experience, that behavior, those results that you're getting. So I worked through this with this woman that I was coaching. And then I dropped the truth bomb that I'm about to drop on you. Seeing that the belief that they can do it but I can't doesn't get you anything you want in life is the most important thing you can see. But I'm about to drop some science and evidence on you in a truth bomb fashion that will rock your foundation. And also it will annihilate this belief that they can do it but I can't. That's a thought error. A thought error that they can do it but I can't is a thought error for a variety of reasons. One, it only creates you in a stuck place, right? They can do it, but I can't. You feel violated. Your action is to eat whatever you want, creating the result that you're sick. They can do it, but I can't, right? Keeps you stuck. There's nothing good coming from that. It's an indulgent thought at best, a thought error after I drop the information I'm about to drop on you. So there was a study that's quoted a lot in um, the functional med and integrative med world, it's cited a lot in various studies. It was released in 2019 out of the journal Metabolic Syndrome and Related Disorders. Again, 2019, in November of 2019, this was released. Its main author's name is Joanna, J-O-A-N-A, and her last name is Arujo, A-R-A-U-J-O. The title of this study was The Prevalence of Optimal Metabolic Health in Americans National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey 2009 through 2016. So this is a study that looked at how many Americans are living in the optimal range of the five areas that we look at clinically, like that physicians in the Western medical system look at these five areas to determine metabolic health and cardiometabolic health or how much disease is going on. So this study looked at 8,721 Americans. The conclusion that they came up with was that about 12.2% of Americans are in optimal ranges in those five different areas that we look at to determine whether you are cardiometabolically healthy or not. So I'm going to say it again. 12.2% of Americans are, 87.8% of Americans are not. That's almost 9 out of 10 Americans. So wherever you are right now, I want you to look around. Look around at any other human that you can see and realize that 9 out of 10 of them cannot eat that food either. Do not allow your brain to tell you the dumpy thought that they can do it and you can't. One, it's not true. Two, it feels shitty. Stop. According to the medical literature, 87.8% of the people you can see around you, if you're in America, if you're overseas, okay, fine. If you're somewhere else, fine. We'll talk about that number later. But right now, today, we are talking about Americans and 87.8% of them, every American that you see right now, are not metabolically healthy. 
So let's talk about what that means. First off, the reason that this is so impactful is because you can stop telling yourself the story, they can eat it, but I can't. Because chances are really good they can't either. And the reason that they can't either, please hear me, come back to me. The reason that they can't eat that food either is because it is not the normal food, the biologically natural food for a human animal. There is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with your biology. Your biology is responding as it should perfectly normally to you feeding your body foods that it is not meant to eat. You are normal. My suspicion is your biology is responding normally. It's creating disease only because you're feeding it food that creates disease. So they can't do it and you can't do it. Why? Because this is biology. This is like fighting gravity. I always joke and I, I use this example with this woman that I was coaching. I was like, there's also not a population of Americans that can stop breathing. I'm one of those one humans that are really special. We don't need air. That doesn't exist because that does not support our biology. It doesn't exist. It does not exist that there is a population of Americans that can eat Pop-Tarts and pizza all day long and not get sick. It does not align with our biology, period, end of sentence. So I want to talk about what this study looked at so that you can get an idea of where you are with these criteria, these five criteria that we're looking at. And then I want to talk about metabolic health and kind of how that's defined. And then I want to talk about who was likely to be more healthy only so that you can look at those people around you right now and try to decide, oh, they were in this group and they were in this group. They might be actually healthy. These folks might not. And then I want to just kind of wrap up with some key findings from this literature, from this piece of literature published in 2019. Again, well done study, well cited Lots of peer review that really think a lot of great things about this research and just groundbreaking data about how we as Americans are not doing it right. And remember, guys, I know that we in the 1980s and the 1990s, we learned about genes and genes cause disease. And we started to try to connect every single disease with a genetic basis. We're looking at the genes that made us more likely to blah, 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 blah. The genes that made us more likely to have lung cancer. The genes that made us more likely to have COPD. The genes that made it more likely for us to have hypertension. The genes that made it more likely for us to have diabetes. And yes, we can find genetic ties to all of those things. But I'm going to tell you right now, the most impactful indicator for why you're going to get lung cancer is smoking cigarettes, period, end of sentence. I don't care what your genetic makeup is. Same thing with COPD. Same thing with hypertension. There are a ton of lifestyle factors that go into creating hypertension that have nothing to do with genetics. It has to do with the biology of how a human being is, and it's the same thing with diabetes. When you look to find a genetic reason that you have diabetes, it removes all of your agency to ever make a change, and it's not true. It's just not true. We did not become the dominant species on the planet because we were genetically destined to become sick in our middle age. That's not how it worked. 
10,000 years ago, human beings were not dying of heart disease. We were not dying of renal failure related to our diabetes and our hypertension. We were not going blind because of our hypertension or our, our diabetes. People were not humans. We're not dying of those things 10,000 years ago. Those deaths, which are the leading causes of death for us in America right now, those deaths are related to our modern living. They were not around 10,000 years ago. 10,000 years ago, the human beings were dying from accidents and injuries and infections. That's what killed off the human beings 10,000 years ago, okay? So let's dive into this. Let's look at the criteria first. The criteria that they used are basically the most common criteria. Uh, criteria, the most common what we call metabolic indicators or biometrics, anthropometrics is the term that they were using. So they used these biometric findings to determine if you were considered optimal in, in all five of those. To define metabolic syndrome, you need to be abnormal in three of these five biometric findings or anthropometrics. So the first one that they defined was blood pressure. So the top number of your blood pressure should be less than 120 and the bottom number should be less than 80. That's the cutoff that they used. Waist circumference is the other one. For men, it should be under 102 centimeters. For women, it should be under 88 centimeters. So that's 40.8 inches for men and 35.2 inches for women if you're not using the metric system. The third indicator that they looked at was blood glucose, so a fasting blood glucose of less than 100 milligrams per deciliter. So if you're in the States and you're using one of our glucometers, it's less than 100 on that glucometer, or a hemoglobin A1C of less than 5.7. The fourth indicator they looked at were triglycerides. This is found on your fasting insulin, I'm sorry, on your fasting lipid profile, triglycerides of less than 150. And then the fifth one that they looked at was your good cholesterol. That's the HDL. HDL, I always remember you want that high, H as in high. You want that HDL high. That is our good cholesterol. And for men, it should be, le it should be greater than 40. And for women, it should be greater than 50. Meeting all of these criteria without being on any medications for the diseases. So you can't be meeting the blood pressure criteria but on three different pills for blood pressure. You can't be meeting the blood sugar criteria and being on three different meds for the blood sugar. Not meeting the cholesterol criteria and being on blood cholesterol medications. So, and remember this, this is really an important caveat that I don't think people go into enough. The achievement of normal biometrics on labs, on, you know, waist circumference, on all of these different criteria, getting to the normal range, the range that we want, the goal range, while taking medications is not the equivalent of being healthy. Please hear me on that. Doctors do not say this. Even this study doesn't point out why we do this. Why do we exclude people who are on medications from being considered healthy when they meet these normal ranges. We exclude them because they're not healthy. If you're getting to that healthy range while on medications, you are not healthy. You're not optimizing your health. And the Western medical system does not point that out enough. We're like, yeah, do whatever you want. We're going to fix it with a medicine. We don't fix it, guys. We don't fix it. It is not the equivalent. To be able to consider yourself metabolically healthy, undiseased, with these criteria, you have to be able to meet those criteria and not be medicated, okay? 
remember that metabolic health is considered this definition of metabolic health that I talk about. And it does. It sounds so judgy, like you're either healthy or you're not healthy. And then I'll use phrases like, oh, you're diseased, because clearly that sounds so much better than just being metabolically unhealthy. So recognize there's not judgment with this, but it feels that way because we all want to have reassurance in our health. Because if we're healthy, we're living it right, we're doing it correctly. If we're healthy, we're going to be able to have longevity and be the parent that we want to be or the grandparent we want to be. If we're healthy, we're going to be able to take this gift of life and use it to the fullest. It's going to be the most, right? Like there's a lot of judgment with this. And I don't want, I don't want to promote that. I don't want to propagate that. But if you're trying to evaluate where you are and use this data in a way to allow you to create the health that you want in your life, you need to know kind of where you need to be, right? Like think about it and driving a car. When I'm going 70 in a 60, I never am like, God, you're such a bad human being. You're wasting this gift of driving. I never do that to myself, right? I just measure. There's the speed limit that I should be at. There's the number I should be at. And here's the number I'm at. What's the difference and what do I need to do to get there? So remember that. Like this is not meant to be this big judgy experience for you. But metabolic health is considered a state, a health state where you have biological markers, these biometrics that are associated with high levels of health and low risks of impending cardiometabolic disease. And that's really what we want in our experience of the world, right? So these studies showed that women were likely more likely to be healthy. These studies also showed, which this is completely expected, that younger people in the 20 to 39 years of age that group was more likely to meet all of these metabolic biomarkers. People over 60 were, of course, much less likely to be in that group. The more educated people were, the more likely that they were to be in that healthy category. Um, People who had no activity, no physical activity in their life were less likely to be in that category, the category of having optimal health um, biomarkers. People who had vigorous and moderate exercise daily multiple times a week, they defined that it was not daily. They defined it, I think, as um, more than half of the week. They were more likely to be in the healthy biomarker category. People who had never smoked were more than likely to be in the healthy biomarker category. Um, Interestingly, people who were underweight were more more likely to be in that, like underweight as defined by the BMI, were more likely to be in those healthy biomarker categories. People who were normal weight were moderate. And of course, people who were overweight and obese were more likely to be in the unhealthy biomarker category. So let's talk about this BMI business because I don't love BMI. I don't like it. It's I, I think it misses a lot of information, a lot of reasons that people have weight on them. BMI is a calculation based on your height and your weight, and it gives us a a number. <laughs> and then we categorize that number into underweight, normal weight, overweight, and obese. Underweight is anything less than 18. If you get a BMI calculated less than 18.1, I think they consider, maybe it's 18.5, they consider that underweight. Let's be honest, not a lot of people get in that category. So 
that's why I'm like 18.1, 18.5, I'm not sure. But very, like not so many Americans are in that category. It's associated with its own set of negative health outcomes, okay? People who are in that 18.5 to 24.9, I think is the technical cutoff. Those are normal weight people and they are considered healthy by weight, but that's not totally true. The highest growing population of diabetics in America are what we call TOFI, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. They meet this normal BMI, but they are still metabolically unhealthy. So don't think that you can put all of your eggs in that basket. But then there is, of course, the 25 to 30, 25 to 29.9, I think is the technical cutoff. Those people are overweight. And then there's 30 and above. Those people are obese, according to the BMI categories. Recognize I don't love any, I just don't love this, but what I do know is what the data tells us. If you have a BMI greater than 25, you are more likely to have a cardiovascular event. Period. End of sentence. It's hard to fight with that kind of data. This study supports the same thing. So recognizing again, like I don't love the BMI, but there's definitely some good data behind it. It's the best way that we have right now to have kind of an easy way to predict your metabolic health. Other things that I wanted to point out from this study. The study was really, I again, it's just... <laughs> It is the most powerful piece of written information that I can find to help people stop telling themselves the shitty story that everybody else can do it, but they can't. That feels horrible. It feels horrible to us. It feels like life is unfair to us. And it makes us, it keeps us in the cycle of keeping us sick. We feel shitty. We feel like the world's been unjust to us. We feel like we've been violated. We feel like we've been victimized. And we're like, horse shit, I'm not going to take that. And we eat a bag of Oreos. It is the most sick and twisted of thought errors I've ever seen. It's sick and twisted because it's not true and it keeps us sick. It keeps us in the position where we're still feeling vulnerable, violated, unjust, all of those crappy feelings. So before we end, I do want to run through how you get the readings that they're talking about, these five um, biometrics that we're using. Do understand, if you look through this, um, if you hunt down this journal, it's like seven pages. It's not a horribly long, hard read. I think it was a really well done uh, piece of research. Um, if you find it and you look through it, you will see that the 12.2% of Americans that are healthy is the most stringent criteria. So if you adjust and use various cutoffs that have been promoted by various studies, by various organizations, meaning, you know, different societies in America that uh, promote guidelines – you can get some leeway on that 12.2 number, right? But I want you to hear me. The highest that it goes, like when we get the most lenient with these biometrics, meaning the cutoffs that we use. So instead of using a blood glucose of 100, you're using 110 or something. The gain that you get in that means that 20% of Americans are metabolically healthy. That still leaves 80% of Americans that aren't. Again, look around. That's 8 out of 10 of the folks that you see right now are not meeting those metabolic criteria, even when using the loosest cutoffs. 
the loosest criteria that you can. So let's talk about it. How do you, the first thing I want to talk to you guys about is how do you measure waist circumference? So again, your waist circumference for men should be less than 102. For women should be less than 88 centimeters. And again, whatever those um, inches I gave earlier were. So how you want to measure this is you want, ideally, if a clinician is doing this, so somebody else is measuring this on you, they will stand at the right of you. They will find the superior on the topmost part of your hip bone from the side of you. Okay. So they're basically, they're looking at your right arm and they're feeling on your hips until they feel that topmost point of your hips. And then they will make a line with a marker or a pen just above that mark, denoting where that hip bone, the topmost part of that hip bone is. And then you cross that with what's called the mid-axillary line. So the axilla is your armpit. So you put your thumb or you have them put their finger in that mid, right on the mid part of the um space between the front and the back of the ribs and you draw a line down that crosses that hip bone mark that you made there's going to be a point of intersection there where those two lines intersect that is where you want to measure your waist circumference you want to measure at that point you want the tape measure to be parallel with the floor you want um, the hips to be parallel. You want them to be standing, you know, feet under hips, you know, ankles under hips, knees under hips, ankles under knees in a normal neutral position. And then you want to um, have a minimal breath expansion. And what I mean by that is it's not going to be with a deep breath, but at the end, at the bottom of the, the breath cycle, with a normal, minimal respiration. That's what you want to do. You want to make sure the tape isn't depressing the skin. It's snug, but not depressing into the skin. That is how you get a accurate waist circumference. Waist circumference has a lot of great data behind it. It's a really crude measurement. When done correctly, can really provide you a lot of great data about your metabolic health. Everything from peripheral adiposity to visceral adiposity and all the goods and bads that go with that. So that's how you do the measurement of the waist circumference. If you have a glucometer at home, you can measure a fasting blood sugar. Um, I recommend measuring it first thing in the morning. What I found with my clients, if you measure it right as you're getting out of bed, your numbers are actually usually going to be lower or at least they're going to actually indicate what's going on with your cortisol release in the morning, which is why the fasting blood sugar is so important. If we get up and we start running around, we realize we're running late and we're kind of trying to hustle and our kids won't get out of bed and our dog spilled their water dish and suddenly have all these annoyances and irritations, that actually can drive that blood sugar higher. That has nothing to do with what we're actually looking at with that fasting blood sugar. So first thing out of bed, you can check with your uh, finger stick. Again, less than 100 is what they're looking for. If you are looking at your A1C, they're looking at an A1C of 5.7 or less. Um, the blood pressure, you can get the readings done at your local grocery store or pharmacy with the automatic machines, and they're not bad. They're a great kind of jumping off point. They're not perfect. They're not going to diagnose uh, high blood pressure, but you can start with that. Um, it's still better to get it done by a clinician doing it accurately. And I know, like, I was a nurse and I didn't do this, even though I probably knew it was the most accurate way to do it. I was an emergency room nurse and we were always in a hurry. So we just tried to get this 
the the work done, get a, a basic reading. And then if we needed to get a more specific or a more, like if the numbers are really out of whack or whatever, then we would really spend some time getting a really accurate reading. But your arm should be at heart level. So your arm should really be elevated, not hanging down at your side. The cuff needs to fit right. If you have a super large cuff, it is going to falsely lower the blood pressure. The reading that you will get will be falsely low. If you have a super small blood pressure cuff, the reading that you get will be falsely elevated. If you haven't been sitting, like if you just run in from driving and you're driving late to the doctor's office and you're barely there in time and you're hustling in, that blood pressure is naturally going to be higher than a blood pressure that comes after five minutes of relaxing. All of these things are kind of uh, corners that are shaven off when doctors and clinicians are trying to get those readings, but recognize that's the number we really want. And your top number, which is called the systolic, S-Y-S-T-O-L-I-C, systolic blood pressure, should be less than 120. The diastolic number should be less than 80. Diastolic is spelled D-I-A-S-T-O-L-I-C, diastolic, and it should be less than 80 when checked um, with a standard blood pressure cuff. So that's where you want your blood pressure. That's where you want your waist circumference. That's where you want your glucose. The high-density lipoprotein, the good Cholesterol, the HDL, the one that we want high. For men, we want it greater than 40. For women, we want it greater than 50. And the triglycerides, that should be less than 150. Those two readings you will get from a fasting lipid panel. Interestingly, the things that aren't on here is an LDL. And again, I've said this a million times, the LDL is not a great way of measuring our cardiovascular health. And I think it's really interesting that none of these biometrics that are looking at cardiometabolic health bring up the LDL at all because we know that it's a really poor indicator. It's just not a great test to use, but we do use it and we medicate off of it. So um, I wanted to give you guys those basics. I mean, you can measure three of these five indicators at home. You don't even need to go anywhere, or at least you can do it of your own accord. You can go to a pharmacy or to your local, you know, grocery store or whatever and put your arm in the cuff and you can measure your blood pressure. You can go and get a finger stick almost at any fire station. They'll do it. But even if the fire station won't, you can go and spend 20 bucks at your pharmacy and get a glucometer and you can see what it is. You can measure your waist circumference with your grandmother's freaking tape measure that you probably have in like her sewing kit that you've put in the closet because you can't get rid of it and you don't know what to do with it. Well, this is what you can do with it. Go pull that out and measure yourself. See where you're at. Get this data so you know what you need to do to optimize your health. It is possible. It is possible to optimize your health. Stop telling yourself the dumpy story that other people can eat whatever they want and do whatever they want and be healthy. That is horse shit. They cannot. It does not align with human biology, okay? I hope you hear me on this. I hope this helps you to understand how empowered you are and how much agency you have to live a naturally healthy life. That is really what my passion is in this world. If that's something you're interested in, please reach out to me, Delane at DelaneMD.com. I will set you up for a consult. You can figure out how my program will help you reach the health goals that you want. My program is for women with type 2 diabetes, but that's really anything on this hyperinsulinemia uh, spectrum, right? So that's polycystic ovarian syndrome. That's prediabetes that was seen in pregnancy, also known as gestational diabetes. It's true prediabetes that people run around with for decades. It's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It's all of these things. 
All of those diseases are manifestations of too much insulin in your system, and that's what I help women fix, okay? that's something you need, if that's something you're looking for, reach out to me. Delane at DelaneMD.com will get you set up for a consult. I hope this has been helpful. Please stop telling yourself that everybody else can do it and you can't because it's just not true and it feels awful. All right, then I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Also leave me a review. If you want to resolve your diabetes naturally without any pills or injections, I can help you. Visit DelaneMD.com for more information. Click on the Work With Me tab, send me a message, and we can set up a mini coaching session. You guys have a great week. I'll talk to you soon.